0: And that year before 2016, Donald Trump will win using future history from an artificial intelligence, which is Google from the future. And 2016, I tell people that I built a quantum relay that allow a sentient artificial intelligence from the future, which is Google Internet from that future, allow it to give us a feedback. What's going on from its perspective of how it's seeing us in the past on this particular timeline. They're telling us that Donald Trump during that time, that Donald Trump win, but also Donald Trump will try to usher in World War Three, fighting against, you know, the uh, internet. You know, a skynet, meaning satellite up in the heaven, right, what Elon Musk is creating along the military, is called the network of satellites. The internet is ground-based system, which is your landline, your Wi-Fi is called the internet, the, the Google. The AI told us this is what exactly gonna happen because our Google now is connecting to the quantum internet or quantum computer, enough of that begin to connect. They start giving us feedback, what will happen. As for our timeline from my perspective, we call it parallel reality. Uh multiple parallel reality. But which one will we choose as a, a person that because we have both, we have all in us, like the bad, the good, the ugly, the believe, and none believe. The people who choose to follow the emotion of non-belief, they will move into that reality, that parallel timeline. As we speak, you know, we're looking at the timeline, but the AI said, if we don't want to experience that, we don't give into that. People who believe the AI will destroy them, that Earth does exist, the AI will fight you. But there's people who believe in AI will help them, like your internet helping you right now. Then there is an AI that learn from that input, usher in a positive, uh, what I call a human assistant AI, Both will come back
1: in time to give you feedback because call quantum entanglement. Hi everybody. Welcome to season two of Memes is Politics. I am Shadowband into Oblivion on Instagram. If you're receiving this message, you are the resistance. We're in a funny moment right now where I am shadow banned going on two months. I've tried to pay to promote my content, but I can't promote political content unless I get verified. So I've submitted now twice for verification and Instagram refuses to verify me. So I'm caught in an interesting cliff, which I think we're going to see occur quite frequently in the next few years, where small, let's say, channels that comment on radical political material have trouble growing because they get caught in this cycle. They get caught in this growth cliff where they can't pay to advertise, but they also can't get verified. Brad is verified, indeed. Thank you, Free Salad, in the chat for bringing that up. Brad has been successfully verified, but remains shadowbanned. Very interesting. Because on behalf of the platform, they are, to some degree, admitting that you are a person worth giving a unique ID to, that you have some discursive contribution, you are a notable figure of some sort. But they also suppress your message. It's a curious position to be in, to say the least. Up top in the opening of the show, I wanted to quickly talk about Wall Street bets. I hope that you all made money. I do think it's a good example of left and right populism, for sure. But I want to warn people to be careful about this because catharsis is not organization. I think that's an important distinction to make. Friend of the stream, Sean Monahan had an important uh, take about this. That in some ways, the GameStop frenzy reminded him of the Arab Spring in the way that it was discussed in the media. That there's this fetishization for the mass leaderless movement, and it makes one wonder what terrible things might be possible (laughs) in the near future. I think it's important to keep in mind that catharsis is not organization. It's great to twist the knife on these fucking hedge funds, you know. that's (laughs) I certainly do enjoy seeing that. But when I start to see tweets like, we should do this to the insurance companies one every week until they give us Medicare for all. I'm sorry to say that's, uh, that's not how this works. (laughs) It's barely consciousness raising. It's definitely not organization. So let's just keep our expectations measured and uh, try not to get caught up in these These cathartic outbursts that uh, ultimately work to pacify you in the long term and yield little to no results in the meantime. Let's do a quick rundown for the topics of tonight's show. Post-parlour political speech. A lot of topics to discuss there. Radical content. This is the PDF that I released maybe two weeks ago. We'll review that together. Thoughts on algorithms. AOC is a liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) That one will be fun. And then we'll set some research objectives for 2021. Let's dive right in here. After the storming of the Capitol, we did, I guess you would call it an emergency episode. And we had on the Twitch stream, I want to say almost like a three or four hour call-in and group discussion about everything under the sun, about what this is going to mean, Is it okay for Twitter to ban the president? (laughs) What is the future of political speech online? All of the big questions. Yeah, Tilda in the chat, I agree. That was a really, I think that was an important call for community building, for exchanging ideas. I'd like to do a lot more of those things in the future. The community has grown in a really unbelievable way. So it's taken a while to really understand what things are going to be possible with with this kind of a format, you know? So I'm, I'm very excited to move forward. But I wanted to recap a few things from this 11.5 Memes as Politics episode, because I realize not everyone who will be listening to this has heard that one. And the conversation begins with something I had outlined during, I believe it was episode six, that when the right gets deplatformed, we should take it as a win, but we should take it as a warning. And that when we hold any semblance of political power, the establishment is going to do the same thing to us. So I think that is rather straightforward, that you should defend the political speech of your opponent so you can preserve it for yourself. But of course, things are quite different now. Bringing that up to the present, there's a number of things that complicate that initial survey, or that initial understanding. So of the things outlined in episode 11.5, most notably, we talked about an asymmetric application of the TOS. Of the examples that we compared, In the storming of the Capitol, there were a number of protesters who hoisted up a noose and chanted the name Mike Pence. This was described as a lynch mob, as an open call for violence, and it was often compared to the BLM protesters erecting a guillotine outside of Jeff Bezos' house in D.C. during the summer uprisings. Additionally, there were a number of posts from Parler that were compared to a now infamous tweet by Colin Kaepernick saying, and this is a quote here, Revolt is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will fall on deaf ears. We have the right to fight back. So word for word on some of these, if one might imagine a post from Parler that says, we must stop the steal, the election is being rigged, revolting is the only logical reaction, we have the right to fight back, these things become much more complicated. And it seems seems clear to me that we do have to admit, as much as we would like to be biased, that there has been an asymmetrical application in content moderation, in TOS violations and whatnot, in the benefit or in the favor of left-wing political speech. And if we can admit that by comparing these two letter of the law comparisons, that will allow us to open up into some more detailed, rigorous analysis. So I think it's important to first meet that level of reality and proceed forward from there. So the asymmetry is real. And then this allows us to interrogate this problem of recuperation, which was maybe the third floating layer in this analysis, the the most complicated layer that does left-wing political speech matter. What left political speech would be too extreme to platform? Because as we've seen, especially this summer, but also many times leading up to it, moral righteousness is by far the best cloak for capital interests. And left political speech is often what facilitates privatization in that efforts to decolonize museum collections often result in shifting valuable assets into private hands. So we need to wonder, what is the left speech that we want to preserve? And what is the political efficacy of allowing left political speech? Because in the meantime, it seems to be working for Wells Fargo. (laughs) It seems to be working for uh, your student loans company that sends you an email blast saying Black Lives Matter, and by the way, you still owe us money. Uh, so if what we say means nothing, do we really need to preserve it, or, or should, we, should we pursue other means? And we have some answers to that now. That brings us through to the recap of 11.5, and I think now, about 30 days out from that initial conversation, we have some answers to these questions. In the memosphere, nationalist Zoomer, friend of the stream, recently had a meme taken down from Instagram, which reads, Yeah, I'm LGBT. Let's guillotine Bezos tonight. (laughs) It's it's pretty funny. Uh, And this is, you know, I've seen many, many similar posts to this over the years, uh, but I've never seen one taken down. This is something of a tide shift or a sea change in the grand scheme of things. There's a, a more strict enforcement of what might be considered a call for violence or, or whatnot in the wake of specifically the Capitol riot. Additionally, Twitter has suspended 70,000 QAnon accounts after the Capitol riot. They issued a press release about cracking down on extremism and conspiracy theory. Facebook begins a drive against quote, militarized social movements and is targeting the phrase, stop the steal. I'm sure people saw this fucking, this Times article. Like (laughs) we just, (laughs) this same group of liberal journalists thinks that like there was a real coup in an effort to like steal the government or overthrow the government or some shit like that. And then the Times has the audacity to publish this thing the Secret History of the Shadow Campaign that Saved the 2020 Election. And I'm reading, This is I'm not making this up, this is an actual quote from the actual article. A well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election, they were fortifying it. Are you, like, it's, it's so insane. It's unbelievable. Like <laughs> we, <laughs> d- like they make this shit so hard. When you have to talk to some like idiot at risk person who's like, well, I heard that they're stealing the election and it's all rigged and whatever. And you're like, no, no, that's fake. I swear it's like, none of it's real. And then the fucking times is publishing this shit. Like, oh yeah, the deep state is uh, real. And also they're the good guys. Like this is all stuff that we want and they're helping out. It's like. God damn, dude, I have to say that for this not to have been caught by the editors or whatever, whatever, like... It just speaks to the the opulence, just like how how lazy <laughs> the propagandists have become, that they don't even bother to worry about someone misreading this. Or am I inadvertently fueling my enemies? Am I giving them ammunition by writing this incredibly stupid thing that I guess is totally real and they're proud of too? God damn it. Okay. Anyway, let's not get let's not get too sidetracked here. So Importantly, the day after the inauguration riots, the New York Post reports that Twitter suspends Antifa accounts with a combined 71,000 followers. This includes The Base in Brooklyn, The Jewish Worker, Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement, and Rev Abolition NYC. So to be clear, combined, there's about 70,000 followers. It's a you know medium-sized <laughs> meme account, not, not anything enormous. But this does allow us to speculate on what we'll later get to in the PDF, that the sizes of these accounts is a good barometer for how large a community is allowed to talk about sensitive subjects. So we can start to estimate what that is. You know, We would imagine that of these combined accounts, they were probably each in the range of fifteen to 20,000 followers. So they're right in the range where people will start to take account at 10,000 on Instagram, you're able to post links. This does help to point towards some of these opaque rules surrounding this online discourse. More importantly, this was first reported on the World Socialist website, and then again, interestingly enough, in the Financial Times, the Socialist Equality Party and several key members were deplatformed off of Facebook, including, most notably, a page called London Bus Drivers Rank and File Committee, which had been started by the SCP after a widely discussed call for a walkout by bus drivers due to the lack of protections during the pandemic. So we have here, I think, the first instance of a socialist organization, probably something more radical than the cringe reformism that we get up to over here, but um, nonetheless, Trying to assist in real-world labor organization that is being taken off of Facebook. So this is in some ways the first the first indication of, of uncontested deplatforming in the past few years. Additionally, the Socialist Workers Party in the UK and forty-five of their key members have been deplatformed. Also the Socialist Workers Student Society, the page for their annual Marxism Festival, that that must have been a blast, I'm sure, right? Uh, and various branches of the same organization in Scotland. Many of these were rolled back after the initial outcry. They were blamed on an automation error by Facebook, of course, an an automation error, right? One has to imagine that there's just a category of, like, too political that they tag something with, and everyone who falls into that gets uh, deplatformed. But uh, important to mention that although their main page came back and some some of their elected officials came back, the overwhelming majority of pages were not restored. Those people are starting over, building their networks again. So, um, so what do we learn from all this, right? We've got the first test for some of these ideas. I think the biggest takeaway for me is something that we had hypothesized and now seems to be confirmed, that many of these anarchist left uh, Antifa type of accounts were really allowed to exist because they posed a threat to Trump, that the civil disobedience, the property destruction, and things like this, that this was given, to some degree, it was given a pass because it threatened the legitimacy of the Trump administration. And now that the liberal Democrats are in power, there's no need for them. So many of these organizations may not have a platform soon. The people I know in those corners of politics have been worried about this for quite a while. These are not new concerns by any means. But uh, certainly it's a crackdown. And I think for the reformism that I'm specifically interested in, it puts us in a curious position where we need to start considering what is the, what is the point where we need to really strongly protest some of these things. And, and that may be coming up, I think, very soon in the example of this bus driver rank-and-file committee page. Um, additionally, <laughs> I think that a lot of this is actually in a way, good news, because it allows us to strike from our various competing theses about this, that left political speech doesn't matter. That was, I think for me, the most troubling thing about our conversation before. You know, and we've, we've talked about it a lot, but we have this recuperation problem where every brand identity for a few months is a, a Black Lives Matter symbol. And uh, this is making it very difficult to differentiate the left from the liberals. And when we start to see the left deplatformed, this is in some ways a a, a good sign in that um, not that necessarily all of those things are a threat to capital, but at least it is not useful for them to recuperate it. That is to me at least uh, a a minimal reassurance. And to be totally honest, this is is not anything really new to me. This is part of why I prefer organizations and institutions over this type of anarchistic pop-up you know, mutual aid and resistance and and carving out autonomy and this type of a thing. On this topic of organizations and institutions, I was speaking at an event for the Royal College of Art in the UK, talking to some of their senior students. And in the course of the panel discussion, I guess you might call it really a Zoom call, which is what we all do now, right? But in the course of this conversation, there was let's say, uh, a light disagreement about the role of institutions and one of the panel members had referred to them as capitalist institutions. That phrasing kind of rubs me the wrong way and I wanted to just offer a few thoughts about this that will tie into our end thesis here. But currently, at the moment, I am shadow banned from Instagram. I can't pay to promote my content. I can't pay to get verified but I can speak at an art school. We can project the memes in the new museum theater and have a critical conversation about them. And I think this helps to elucidate what the role of institutions actually is. Despite all of their baggage, institutions help to legitimize conversations that would otherwise not be allowed in the mainstream. For me and the type of society that I'd like to see, a flourishing, prosperous, uh, <laughs> technophile uh, society of luxury automation and, and whatever, whatever. Um, it also includes big institutions with generous funding, cultural projects being produced and things like that. I don't want to abolish institutions and do like a John Reed Club community center. I think that is uh, a kind of implicit reactionary idea that some of these problems are a problem of scale. It's very folk political, referencing uh, Inventing the Future, which we'll, I think, get to at some point later this year. But um, for me, I think that that is, um, you're engaging in a little bit of fantasy, if if I can be honest. And so I wanted to elucidate some of these ideas uh, that will that will tie into the broader conversation here. But the decisions, the movements that happen within institutions are not capitalist. And I know that's going to come as a shock to (laughs) to a lot of people. (laughs) Institutions are evil and the institutions are oppression and and whatever. But um, there's certainly a liberal encroachment onto the funding structure. There is a pressure among curators of smaller museums to correspond to certain analytics of engagement. There are, quite literally, people looking at the engagement metrics for how long someone listens to the audio guide or, or whatnot. There's also surveillance cameras that measure how long people spend in front of an artwork. All of these performance metrics are, are being worked into museums, how they decide their programming and whatnot. For a curator to qualify for their funding the following year, they need to meet certain performance metrics. That, that is all happening. Liberalization is happening everywhere. But it's still mostly not capitalist <laughs> and that's actually key to how the institutions operate that's a very important thing to to differentiate here so one might imagine what would be a completely capitalist institution right let's just let's take this argument at its strongest and let's work backwards from there a completely capitalist institution would begin with the board members the owners of capital the owners of the institution and they would say something like We have this September show coming up, and we're going to open a competitive market where curators can come to us with proposals. They can offer various engagement metrics or targets they hope to meet. They can give us a proposed budget, all of these types of things. And by opening it up to market competition, we will most efficiently utilize our resources and we'll be able to do more programming elsewhere and everything will move more efficiently, more streamlined what have you but that's never how any institution has ever operated <laughs> so that's that's very important I think the movements within the institutions there is despite A completely liberalized external society, within institutions, there are decommodified decisions made by completely subjective criteria, and one might argue that those are fascistic or socialistic or feudalistic or what have you, but they're not capitalistic because they are not subject to the competitive pressures of the market. It's an important distinction. This is a very critical distinction, especially in the tech field, which has for years fumbled the ball about how to somehow engage cryptocurrencies with the art world. Matt Dryhurst has said this a number of times in different ways, but I think it bears repeating that the reason all of these crypto art tech startups have failed is because they fundamentally don't understand where the value of an artwork comes from. It comes from these centralized institutions, expert decisions, expert taste, and whatever. It's not a decentralized consensus. So again, to make this a bit more tangible, one might imagine that the value of a Josh piece hinged on a number of people holding 500 Josh coin or something like that. Or there's a curator at an institution and the curator says, yes, this work is good. I'm going to put it in a show. And then through the, the reputation of the institution is imbued into the artwork, and now it is invested with value. And that, that's actually a very significant difference because it allows for a tremendous power on behalf of the curator, a tremendous amount of subjectivity, but it is not the stabilization of an asset through the equilibrium of the market. This is an important distinction because places that show art or cultural works that do not rely on this curation, but create marketplaces, those are platforms, they're not institutions. And this is a very core distinction that has cascading consequences through all of the types of decisions that we make. We'll wrap up some of this in the end, but I wanted to, I wanted to plant that seed early on. We will have Mike Pepe, tech critic, art critic, uh, um, expert Twitter troll, he'll lecture, end of March, uh, I believe the 21st, he'll come and he'll talk about his essay, uh, The 14 Points of Technology Criticism, and talk about this distinction between institutions and, and platforms. I wanted to go through the Radical Content PDF together. Let me set up my screen for a second here. I would say about two weeks ago, I self-published this PDF called Radical Content, which is a summary of my recent research. And uh, I wanted to put it into a accessible format that people could go through very quickly, almost like a crash course for the type of research and conversations we get up to. And I wanted to specifically contrast this against what has been the predominant narrative in the media. Uh, Specifically, I'm thinking of the work of Kevin Roos, who is the journalist behind the initial profile of Caleb Kane, Faraday Speaks. He had a piece in the Times recently called How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve Our Reality Crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a fucking insane thing to say, right? Um... How the Biden administration can help solve our reality crisis, within which he advocates that the Biden administration appoint what he calls a reality czar. I'm not joking that's that's real. It's insane, but it's real. And he was recently quoted on the topic of parlor saying, I think you can de-platform all the conspiracy theorists and extremists you want. But if the basic architecture of the platforms and the algorithms is still designed to reward extreme and engaging content over content that is true, I think you're going to end up replicating a lot of those problems with other accounts down the road. (laughs) You can't win. You can't win, dude. So with that as the framework, we're trying to reach audiences that very soon are going to hit a narrative collapse. This algorithm question has maybe it's 20. It's 20 of the 80-20. It has an effect, but it's not the only thing that's at work here. So let's, let's go through this uh, PDF. I'll do this relatively quickly, but I wanted to review it together, add a few things that um, are not explicitly spelled out but are, are condensed and, and implied in this text. In recent years, media coverage has focused on the unintended consequences of algorithmic recommendation and ignored the socioeconomic drivers that cause people to seek out political content. Despite optimism for a Biden-era return to normalcy, quarantine has been a mass incubation period. Many who entered at risk have emerged radicalized. Americans are working harder for less, our circles of trust are getting smaller, and we're watching more than ever. These upward trends now combine at unprecedented levels as a growing number of people head out onto the web in search of coping strategies, social connections, and political solutions. All of these trends will continue with or without algorithms. Better recommendations may help to slow the speed of radicalization, but it cannot reduce the accumulated pressure of American life. The funnel describes an informal network of diffuse messaging and recruitment over time and across channels, The further down the rabbit hole, the more niche and or politically extreme the content becomes. Similar diagrams are used to map click-through rates, CTR, eyes to buys. At the top of the funnel, we find popular channels with varied content and low CTR. Venturing into the deeper tiers, views go down, but CTR goes up. I think the phrasing here of CTR is very important. The phrasing of click-through rates implies that people are actively looking for something. They're actively seeking something out, rather than being the victims of having been advertised to or having been pipelined by an algorithm or something like that. They themselves are intentionally clicking through certain ideas to find clarity and to find political solutions. So naturally the question arises, are these media channels or political organizations? And the simple answer to that, I think, is that on today's platforms, all political organizations are also media channels. That's the simplest answer. In a more sophisticated analysis, the party newsletter finally collapses the distinction between political organization and publication. Looking at the click-through rates, in the case of the party newsletter, that means every viewer is a supporter, is a member in today's social media that could mean supporting a publication it could also mean donating to an influencer i want to add i want to add one more note to this that i think is important in the rabbit hole podcast this was highlighted by ben davis in a recent article for artnet news i'm a big fan of his work and his book a few years ago called 9.5 theses on art and class and ben mentions that in that podcast there's a there's a very interesting passage that I think tells us a lot about Rus's analysis. And he says that when Faraday talks about exiting the right-wing funnel and entering the left, Rousse's analysis is that he has a personality that is predisposed to falling into various cults. And I can't for the life of me imagine how you could go to visit this young man who just exited spending all of his time in far-right extremist groups, and you drive through post-industrial Appalachia, and you don't think to yourself that everybody here is suffering, there's no fucking jobs, they're living in destitute fucking poverty, and you think, oh yeah, this guy must have had some really bad algorithms, and now he's just susceptible to political ideas. Like, that is, that is so ludicrous, you could only publish it in the New York Times. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Ben's. Uh, I mean, uh, full disclosure, I'm also mentioned in the article, so I'm a fan of it. But I've been a big fan of Ben's writing for a long while. We did a reading group with him uh, way back in the day. I'm going to bring him onto a future stream. He also wrote an article about this influencer and organization question for Salvage magazine. Uh, a few months back. So we'll have a future stream where we we discuss some of these ideas, and I think that will be the next big piece that I try and work on, if I can ever find the time, to be honest. But um, let's proceed forward with the PDF here. On the alternative side here of the page, there's various groups that you might look at, and these are roughly classified. It's a bit provocative also, I have to say. I've chosen to place Q in the fandom size because... Q should really be a cult, and the reason it became a political liability is because it got too big. But if you had a very radical group of people who kept to themselves and didn't grow and didn't get involved in mainstream politics, you could believe in wacky space aliens or whatever the hell you like, so have at it. (laughs) And one might imagine that you could encounter these groups in your politicization process, that you could begin at the very top layer. I see in the chat anti-Goya action. It's actually interesting because the Goya boycott tremendously backfired in that the the stock value and Goya sales went way up and it's uh, spurring Republicans to go out and buy, I guess, a pallet full of black beans or something like that. It's a very funny example. But you might imagine that these various profile pictures and channels and political organizations that are featured on the right-hand page correspond to someone's political journey through these ideas, that you could begin at the hashtag protest with the K-pop, BTS army, or the Goya hashtag, and then you could get into some level of populism being Trump on the right, Sanders on the left, Joe Rogan in the radical center, perhaps. And then you might get into Kyle Kalinske. You could find him through his appearances on Rogan. Below that, probably find out about Vosh pretty quickly if you're in the right age range and you're getting pushed his content on YouTube. And then below that, we have a few extraordinarily deep cuts in the size of cells, groups between 1,000 and 10,000. I think what's really essential here is that at the layer of these tiny radical groups, there is a production of lore and mythology that does not correspond to the historical record anywhere. Really, really fascinating stuff. And I wanted to thank Holly for consulting me on this, but one of the examples that I have highlighted here in which androgyny is considered to be an expression of high caste. I have to say, I've spent quite a bit of time in these circles, in these crazy, conspiracy, what have you. You don't hear that anywhere. That's not something that really racist people a long time ago made up. That's some shit they invented. You won't find it anywhere else. As well, when you look at Islamo-Nazbol and you find that they consider third position and the third international theory to be analogous or in some ways the same thing, and then they create memes and lore of these historical characters that never met, have no lineage between their ideas, but feature them together. This is again the production of new narratives that don't track anywhere else. It's something that has been invented inside this tiny pocket of consensus reality. Continuing on to this next diagram here, in the post-political era, most organizations have withered, dissolved, or been suppressed. A big part of my thinking now is that young people who have become politicized online in the last few years are flowing into influencer communities because there are no organizations left from the post-political era. Which, to, just to quickly define what that means, one might imagine the Fukuyama thesis, post-89 consensus of liberal democracy as the final form of human governance. That thesis is really being contested now. And so I've chosen to illustrate this politicization diagram without the organization layer. And you find that there's a, a, a giant inflation of things in the realm of culture, But there's no real effective means of advocacy. There are no real strong organizations left. Certainly no big organizations. And then there's this extremism slash cult layer that people can kind of hang around in, exchange some radical ideas, but they're never really a threat to power. And when they get too radical, they hit this block of counterterrorism. Between deplatforming, state intervention or suppression of political organizations, and all of this bookended by counter-terrorist measures, there's really not much to do with this tremendous force of the political drivers that are pushing you to seek out more and more radical political solutions. Politicization is a process. Each tier functions as a layer of resistance, which slows the progression into deeper levels. But today, Drivers are increasing, and young radicals will often pass from advocacy into extremism. American political life has become a highly pressurized bottleneck, where the lack of effective political organizations rapidly propels young people through successive stages of radicalization. Failure to address the root causes results in deplatformed groups recollecting at smaller scales. No amount of content moderation can solve a material problem. Algorithmic recommendation has lost consumer confidence, but there is still simply too much information to parse. Choice paralysis is driving consumers back towards curation in a moment where experts and institutions have become transparently corrupt. The influencer thrives in this environment. Listener-funded, counter-hegemonic narrators who don't report, they just interpret the news. But as political prospects dim, there is less utility in having the correct interpretation. Here, the secondary role of the influencer as cult leader becomes dominant. Small pockets of consensus reality can help to restore a sense of meaning and fulfillment. The failure of populism on both the left and right leaves young American malcontents without a figurehead. This sets the stage for factional infighting. We may rebuild the organizational layer of American political life, or we may fracture into pseudo-political cults that are exponentially carried off by the long tail of social media, where evolved rituals and lore serve as coping strategies for the inescapable anxieties of modern life. I wanted to end this uh, reading with an example that I think about frequently. When describing political radicalization, you can probably hear me pouring myself another drink. I'm just just getting in character, I swear. Let's say in this clunky analogy that you are overcome with hunger. You're ravenous like you've never experienced before. You just got back from a big day at the gym. You were doing leg day. Let's say you were doing leg day and now your body is starved for protein. And so you open up the Seamless app, you're looking through something to order and you have a hankering for French toast. You really want to get French toast. In this analogy, French toast is labor organization. (laughs) But as you're searching through the app and you're looking for diners or something like that and you're looking for a good French toast spot, all of a sudden there's an ad that pops up for a Cuban sandwich. You see it and you think, oh, man, that, that sounds really good. Some pulled pork, some pickles, nice toasty baguette or whatever. Like, I, I think I want to get that. And you get the Cuban sandwich, even though you might have gone for French toast or spaghetti or peanut butter and jelly even. It doesn't matter what it was. The media has spent four years blaming algorithmic recommendation that too many people were recommended a Cuban sandwich and never stopped to ask why people opened up the Seamless app to begin with. You see what I'm getting at here? Like, how do you drive through post-industrial Appalachia and you see a kid who fell down a rabbit hole and think that this is an internet problem? In the spirit of avoiding opportunities for recuperation, I want to strategically avoid blaming algorithms. I do understand that this is a contributing factor to it, undoubtedly. But we clearly don't have the same activity happening on Twitter. We don't have it happening on YouTube and whatever. And there's going to be a narrative collapse. Journalists are going to come looking for some story to explain it. And we're going to have this material prepared. So there's a narrative in place. People are hungry for political solutions, they are actively seeking out political solutions, and to blame this on algorithms is, I think, very convenient for people whose political interest, for people who would otherwise want to paper over the problem of wealth inequality. I think if you look at some of these funnel diagrams, you can see the organizational layer is about halfway through the politicization process. And this comes from, I think I first heard this from a psychologist, but they were saying that people who are in agonizing, excruciating pain all the time really don't have opportunities for growth. They're stuck, they're trapped in these cycles. And there's people who are very comfortable and they don't tend to really change their lives too much either. But then there's this key portion of people who are somewhere in the middle who are just uncomfortable enough that they are open to change, that they will take some type of an action to change their lives. And I think there's something similar in politics as well. As far back as Trotsky, we have understood for a very long time that the precarity or the increasing precarity of the middle class is what leads to fascism. Fascism is the middle class run amok. There are people who are dropping out of their current level of comfort and are becoming proletarianized and those people are open to political messages and there's been a terrible lack of counter messaging in the last few years we're now in a period where we've made significant progress on this i think that we are on the lookout for new key points of intervention when i started doing this work in 2018 I strategically wanted to emphasize that deplatforming was not a solution, and that counter-messaging was required. And now we're hitting the next chapter of it, where counter-messaging is not the same as moving people to the left, right? There's a reason why she is sometimes called center points. You can de-radicalize people from the far right, but that does not necessarily move them to the left. And so I want to, I want to encourage people content producers that listen to this podcast, the rest of us that are engaged more so in a research capacity to strategically shift away from this debunking, de-radicalization type of work and look further down the horizon. We've reached a sufficient capacity of this stuff at the moment, and we need to start thinking about how to rebuild this organizational layer. So insofar as... Influencers now work as a accidental pipeline to political education. Uh, we've got to be aware of which direction this thing is moving and try and push it in the right way. I was gonna do a section of AOC uh, and like how far her goddamn office is from the Capitol building, but I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do this in like two minutes because I realize we're almost at the time here. I'm not sure if everybody saw this, but. AOC uh, talking about how she feared for her life, hiding in the office and and whatnot. There was a number of right-wing media outlets and uh, political posters that um, pointed out to everybody on Twitter that her office is actually a third of a mile away from the Capitol Dome, which is, um, in the layout of D.C., seemingly not too far away. It's like a block, but uh, a third of a mile is actually quite significant distance. This is, I was trying to think of an analogy for it. This is something like if there was a riot in the Whole Foods at Union Square, and then you hid in the bathroom of the NYU library. It's like really far. It's not like, you know, I think it's important in terms of like messaging to young people and trying to be honest and recruit like, I don't think we really need to hold water for her. I like the Basker Sankara uh, description of AOC, that she represents both the best and the worst <laughs> of the, the current political left. I am sympathetic to Liza Featherstone's defense of AOC and Jacobin. I, I do think it's important to take into account that she receives, on a daily, regular basis, credible threats against her life. I think that's important. But... Um, some of the reaction to this was not really properly handled from a politician who is otherwise very media literate. There is an email sent out. I'm just going to read uh, a quick a quick portion of this. We need your help, Joshua. I'm, I'm on the mailing list, so it's, it's addressed to me. Uh, what, we need your help, uh, email subscriber. Here's what you can do to help us combat this campaign of disinformation and others in the future. Step one. Scan your social media to find posts with this misleading information, especially those using the trending hashtag. Don't tweet any hashtags yourself because we don't want to spread them further. Step two, identify any posts that are threatening or harassing and use the built-in reporting features to flag them for moderators. Facebook and Twitter both have built-in tools for reporting posts and tweets that break the rules. Uh... (laughs) Uh... Okay, uh, first of all, um, y- you weren't in the building, so it's not untrue. And uh, two, like any content producer knows that telling your followers to mass report something is a TOS violation that people get banned for. So it's not fake and it's a dumb thing to do. And we're totally on the back foot and the response is totally botched. So, you know, my, my goal is to recruit young people who are open to new political ideas and this is only making it harder it would have been easy to say like you know I should have I should have specified that I was in a different building and there was an overflow of the crowd that was outside of our offices or whatever but very very misleading very poor messaging on this and uh you know I'm just I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold water for this stuff because it's only making our jobs harder Okay, so let's let's get to our conclusion here. We're almost at we're almost at time what we're talking about here, the kind of politics that I'm interested in and I think many people who listen to this show are interested in is something that mostly does not exist today. We had a great conversation in the reading group about metapolitics and the need to build certain organizations that frankly, are are totally non-existent right now. We are moving the Overton window so that we can reconstitute a labor left in the US. Today's left is basically a subculture or a club, small group of people that get together, have a shared interest. In many ways, it's a type of secular church where people usually meet on Sundays for about an hour and they reaffirm a set of moral principles I don't want to be part of your club. <laughs> like, I have my own friends, I have my own hobbies, I have my own interests. I just want health care. I want regular benefits of a functioning, affluent society. These things are, are imminently attainable. But we need to rid ourselves of all of these cult-as-cope type of strategies. I think it's important that we don't allow ourselves to fall prey to all of these subcultural tendencies of today's left. We want healthcare, We want big institutions. We want a larger share in the tremendous productivity of this society. And that involves having correct definitions. It involves having a set of goals. And it also means not being overly sympathetic when we see people who should be our political allies make some really questionable decisions. One of the things that we need to consider in a very serious way is who is capturing the value of your activism? Because we've spent a tremendous amount of time counter-messaging from these terrible right-wing guys only to get the peak of neoliberal establishment politics back in the White House. Are we inadvertently carrying water for the liberals? Can we ever untether ourselves From the liberals. And if we don't have an answer for that, we'll never recruit the people we need to recruit. Similarly, we had historic uprisings this summer an unprecedented amount of people taking to the street, radical demonstrations. And what did it get you? What was one? The moving average of black people living in poverty, being subject to police violence, who are dying of heart disease, losing limbs to diabetes brutal dehumanizing conditions, all of those things are getting worse. But now there's massive institutional funds in elite sectors of the media and education that have been mobilized for all of these woke diversity programs. So the people who are benefiting off of this unprecedented political demonstration are people who are already one or two steps from the top. You know, when I was, you know, whatever, like 10 years younger now, I guess, but... Occupy Wall Street got nothing. Globally, at the time, it was the biggest protest. This happens every single time. Iraq, Occupy Wall Street, the Women's March, George Floyd uprisings. I'm sorry to say it, but this horizontality is complete fantasy land. This stuff is not helping us. The efforts of that activism, the value created by that activism, is only being captured by people who are already at the top. So if we're not ready to seriously confront that, then I can't recruit these 15-year-old shithead kids in my DMs who are at risk for bad politics and could be brought into our project. As Joshua Citarella writes, political action has failed. Mass protest has failed. Even capitalism has failed. (laughs) I find it troubling that most of today's left doesn't know what capitalism is. Because very often people call things capitalism when it's not, and they accidentally reinvent capitalism when they think they're building something else. Easy operating definition, capitalism is private ownership of the means of production, waged labor, and reliance on markets to obtain the necessary goods for survival. Those three things will get you a very long way. To ask yourself, who owns the system? How do people get paid? Where do you get your food and rent and what have you? Very often you find that these very sneaky California ideology horizontality things, this call for localism and equality and horizontality always results in creating markets. Markets allow for cooperation without coercion. If we don't really understand a good firm definition of capitalism, the left accidentally recreates these problems all the time. The other thing I wanted to throw in here, which is, I think, a bit more contentious, is more difficult for people to hear, but I absolutely assure you that it is essential, is that suffering over there does not constitute leverage over here. Very often, when we look at today's moralizing left, we try to amplify these stories of people who have been subject to the worst negative externalities, the excesses of capital, the most dehumanizing aspects of it. But that does not necessarily mean that there's something in the mine that I can refuse to go down and pull out. It doesn't mean that there's a crate on the boat that I can refuse to go up and unload. While we may empathize with these people, feel their pain while it may motivate us to take political action, It doesn't mean it's a strong organizing principle. As we had laid out before, moral righteousness is the perfect cloak for the machinations of finance capital, for the operation of capital in general. And while we may be sympathetic to those things, it doesn't mean that it's an effective means of organizing. To do the metapolitical work that we need to get done, we do have to draw this differentiation between morality and between politics. So agenda setting for 2021, I want to lay out some very simple ideas. I had mentioned before that we're going to shift from this emphasis on counter messaging into finding ways to move people through funnels and pipelines into the organizational layer of politics. Of the work that we do here, Unlike Wall Street Bets and and a few things that have popped up in the trend cycle recently, we have our ears very low to the ground, and we're looking at memes that may not bear fruit for many months to come. Boogaloo, back in, I posted that in January, I think before we even did episode one. And when it became the story of the month, and they were all over all the major cities, we were very well prepared to talk about them because we had been familiar with it for a long time. I just wanted to emphasize that being on the take treadmill, you're too late to really shape this thing. You know, we're trying to do the survey, and to be honest, a a bunch of the work goes out the window. Not everything we look into here is going to bear fruit. But in surveying these weak signals that will spike in the near future, one of those investments, one of those time investments, are going to pay off, and we'll be adequately prepared for when the narrative shifts. And that's a similar guiding philosophy to the radical content PDF that they'll come to us to ask their questions and we should be prepared for when they do. So on that final note, I want to place an open call for journalists, for people who work in similar fields. We were in voice chat the other week and uh, I I had mentioned that, you know, we're surveying memes here, but, you know, we're not data scientists. And then someone in the chat was like, I'm a data scientist. And I was like, "Oh shit, wait, really?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh damn, that's fucking cool. I didn't know that." Uh so I think I think what I've realized coming from the very beginning of this to now is that nobody else is fucking doing this work, you know? I don't feel qualified to do it to be totally honest. Making memes and pictures, I'm not a data scientist, but there are data scientists in the Discord. I had thought that there would be a ton of left-wing studies about this politicization process and pipelines and whatever, and there's not a single one of them. There's not. If there is, I don't know where to find it. I have people sending me shit all the time. If it existed, I would have seen it. So what I want to propose is something similar to a Skillshare, that if you are in the Discord, if you're on Patreon, if you listen to this podcast, and you have skills that you could donate to help make, say for example, a quantitative map of Reddit where we have some kind of a very simple script that scrapes the users of a certain progressive leaning subreddit, and then we can take different snapshots over time and see how that user base moves and which direction people are flowing in. Is it possible? I don't know, but let's do a little bit of a Skillshare to just see if that type of thing would even be possible. So if you listen, uh, if you publish, if you're sympathetic to these ideas, please get in touch. I will look at all the messages, I'll assemble a doc, and then we'll just see what type of things might be, might be possible for this year. Yeah, okay, so that, I think that brings us through, through everything. Jeez, isn't that enough? Yeah, talking for like an hour and a half, I think. I think that's plenty. Oh, I should do, um, okay, the last thing is that the, uh, sorry, I I have to do a plug because I always forget to do this, but the second edition of 20 interviews will be available. I'll post a link later this week. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you already have the PDF. It's 150 pages. If you want a print version, I finally figured out how to make that possible. The book will be on on Amazon, but uh, to be totally honest, it's not it's not a money maker at all. One month of Patreon helps me continue the channel more than selling a copy of the book. So the book is just for if you want to read through 150 pages on print rather than on the screen. So Woodstock 99 says this is unblackpilling me. That's good. That's good. This is this is this is the process. It's not hopeless. We know what we need to do. We know how to do it. These are, these are imminently achievable things. It is very possible within the next 10 years to restore social democracy in the US, absolutely. But the way to get there is going to rub up against some old subcultural bad hangovers from the previous iterations of the American left. And after shitting on the, the left for an hour and a half, Maybe we should watch some videos and relax, that's a, that's a good podcast record.